All right, this morning we are going to continue in our journey through Acts that we've been on for quite a while now. Although this past week I was laying out um, the next couple months of sermons, uh, just looking forward, and we have, a, we have an end date to Acts. Um, at the end of August, we're going to have worked through the entire book, uh, which is pretty cool. Two things I got to get out of the way before we start. One is I'm going to trip on this, this stage here, because it's not normally here at some point, so feel free to laugh when that happens. And the second thing is there's a sentence in the scripture that we're going to be reading out loud that I promise you I will laugh <laughs> when I read this sentence, and I'll show you why. I'm going to skip forward to it, and we can just get it out of the way, and you can read it with me. At the end of this passage, um, let me see. Okay, you see verse 17? The way that you say that name is Sosthenes. So this sentence says, they all seized Sosthenes <laughs> down by the seashore. So everybody said, say, she seized Sosthenes down by the seashore. Go ahead. <laughs> when I was reading that out loud, I was like, I'm going to laugh. So I had to get that out of the way. All right, this morning, again, the, the hope for the morning is to stir a hunger for God's word. So as I was studying, I was sharing this with Patty earlier this morning. As I was studying this week, I was really drawn to the background information uh, of this text. And that's stuff I usually study on my own, but I don't necessarily bring, like I don't want to overdo it on that kind of thing when I'm, when I'm preaching on a Sunday morning. But this week, I was really drawn to like all the background information, what was going on in Paul's life, what's going on in the city of Corinth, the geography of the whole thing, the people involved, and it just seemed like a ton of information. So I was, I was asking the Lord and meditating, you really want me to bring all this information? That's, that's a lot, more than, more than anyone can probably handle in 40 minutes. Um, and and I, I do sense him saying yes. So as, as I prayed more about that, here, here's what I want to challenge you uh, this week, is I want you to read... 1 Thessalonians this week, and uh, if you're really brave, you know, no, I, I, I'm not even going to put a modifier on it or qualifier on it. Go ahead and read 1 Corinthians as well, okay? So this week, with this background information that, that I'm going to show, read 1 Thessalonians and read 1 Corinthians. Can we all do that together? And if you've never read 1 Corinthians in one sitting it will make so much more sense than when you break it up verse by verse. It's a letter that was meant to be written in one sitting. And so this week, I would challenge you to set aside, it won't take that long, if you set aside 45 minutes, you can read the whole, the whole letter. Uh, sit down and read 1 Corinthians and read uh, 1 Thessalonians. All right, so here's how we're going to start. I want to invite you to stand as we read the word, and let's read this passage in Acts 18 out loud together as a church. Can we do that? All right, Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, 
And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews... I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, well done, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and they took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Achilla. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Stir within your people, within your children, young and old here today, a hunger and a passion for your word. God, let us be a church body. Let us be a church body that is both filled with your spirit, but centered, God, on your word as well. Let us be a people, God, who spend time daily meditating on your word. We pray that you would plant your word so deeply within us that it would come into our consciousness into our minds into our thoughts throughout our days as we walk as we go to school as we go to work God as we walk out what it is to be alive in this world among our neighbors father we pray that we here at Parker Ford Church and the other churches of this land would be a people of the word of God 
So as we study your word this morning, we invite you to teach us new information that, that maybe we didn't know before, fun things that, that are new insights, but more than that, God, stir within us deep affections and longing, passion and love that leads to abiding in obedience in Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. All right, this is the map of Paul's second missionary journey, which started in Acts chapter 16. And uh, we've been tracking with him. At the uh, beginning of the missionary journey, is uh, right before it, is where he and Barnabas had the big argument over John Mark. And Barnabas headed southwest uh, to Cyprus with John Mark. And Paul took with him Silas, and they headed northwest um, through Galatia, visiting the churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted. And then in a dream, the Lord appeared uh, to Paul and uh, told him to come uh, over into Greece. And so he travels uh, up into Europe, uh, where he plants a church in Philippi, and then in Thessalonica, and then in Berea. And in each of those places, he experiences persecution. In Philippi, Paul was beaten and thrown in prison. And then he was chased out of both Thessalonica and Berea by uh, the Jewish leaders of the synagogue. Um, The early Christians in Berea put him on a boat, and he sailed down to Athens, leaving behind him Silas and Timothy to care for the brand new believers. Can you imagine if you came to Christ, and about two weeks later, the person who led you to Christ was gone, and there was no one else who had a relationship with Christ? That would be tough. That would be confusing. And they had a lot of questions, which we'll address later. This is why Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians when he's in Corinth. So he travels by boat down to Athens. And uh, once again, he finds himself in a rather sticky situation. He's brought before uh, the leaders of Athens, uh, the Areopagus. And they had the power to to prosecute him if they found him to be uh, preaching against the law. And uh, they sort of, after his famous sermon in Mars Hill, he's, he's let go. They, they let him go. Um, and, and he kind of, uh, I think he kind of reads the writing on the wall and realizes this is not a good situation <laughs> by myself. And so he continues uh, southwest uh, into southern Greece um, down uh, this narrow strip of land here. It's about 40 miles. Whoops, sorry. It's about 40 miles from Athens to Corinth, a little bit more than 40 miles. And he travels to Corinth where, again, he's alone. And again, he's waiting uh, for Silas and Timothy to join him. But Paul, even though he's alone, even though he's been uh, persecuted and beaten and imprisoned and he's traveled from place to place, um, he can't bite his tongue. And so he does what Paul does, which is start making contacts and start preaching. The context of Corinth 1, I I titled it that because Paul's going to spend a lot of time in Corinth in the coming years. This will be a major center of apostolic um, ministry. Peter's going to spend time there. Apollos is going to spend time there. Paul's going to come back and visit. Um, So this Corinth becomes a, a hub of apostolic early church ministry. He likely arrived in early 51 uh, CE, and we can date that precisely because Gallio, who was the proconsul, was the proconsul for only one year. And there's written uh, documents uh, in the Roman 
uh, documents that he was there specifically in 51, which is pretty cool. So we know exactly when Paul uh, was in Corinth uh, during this time. He traveled to Corinth within a few months, if not weeks, of when he left Philippi. And I think this is really important to know because he's gotten into this mode, um, not by choice, but because of the persecution he's faced, where he's had to move from place to place quickly. Um, and everywhere he goes, persecution, an intensity of persecution has been rising. And my best guess is when Paul gets to Corinth, I think he probably wasn't planning on staying there very long. I think he was going to wait for Silas and Timothy and then continue his, his journey. And so it's a change of plans when Jesus appears to him in vision and says to him, stay, I'm with you. I'll watch over you. I'll protect you. And so that, that shifts, I think, Paul's mindset of going from place to place quickly. Just uh, quick background information. In Philippi, Paul had been beaten and imprisoned. And then when they found out he was a Roman citizen who had been beaten and imprisoned without a trial, they uh, sort of quietly asked him to leave um, the leaders of Philippi. In Thessalonica and Berea, Paul experienced further accusation and persecution, this time at the hands of the Jews. And Paul moved on to Athens by himself, leaving Silas and Timothy behind him to care for the new believers and the new church. So he's been alone. He's probably exhausted. Um, and he's wondering, how are these churches doing? These people that I came and I told them the gospel, and many of them accepted and started to follow Christ, and then I had to leave. How are they doing? Are they okay? Is God protecting them? We know from Paul's writings that one of the things that Paul emphasizes is continuous prayer. We are to be a people that prays without what? Without ceasing. And Paul modeled this in his own life. So this wasn't just something he preached without practicing. Paul would have prayed as he was making tents. Paul would have prayed as he was walking the streets. Paul was constantly speaking to the Lord. And you and I can abide with Jesus in the same way today. So when you're sitting behind your computer at work, you can be in prayer. When you're watching your kids and changing the sheets on dirty beds or changing dirty diapers, you can be in prayer. We are to be a people of prayer. So Paul is praying for the new Christians. He's praying that God would watch over them and protect them. He's worried over them. He, he describes his anguish and his concern like a mother who's just given birth. That's how he feels about these new churches. After speaking to the Areopagus, that, those were the leaders in Athens, Paul slipped quietly out of Athens and made the 40-mile uh, journey to Corinth. Corinth became a major center of Pauline activity in the coming years. Here he connected for the first time with Priscilla and Phila. And uh, Josh taught on this. Josh Hostetter taught on this uh, three or four weeks ago. And if you weren't here for that, I would highly recommend going back and listening to the podcast of that week's teaching. It was really helpful uh, teaching on interpersonal ministry and interpersonal relationship and how important it was that Paul worked with partners and not alone. Here in Corinth, he also finally reconnects with both Silas and Timothy. Here Paul writes definitely 1 Thessalonians and probably 2 Thessalonians as well during this year and a half while he's in Corinth. And Paul will later write at least three epistles to the Corinthian church. But how many do we have in our Bible? Two. Anybody know why we know for sure that there were three at least? 
In, um, in 2 Corinthians, he references several times a, a hard letter that he had previously written them. And it, uh, the way he describes it, it's obviously not 1 Corinthians that he's talking about. So he wrote at least three uh, apostolic epistles to Corinth. We have two of them, uh, First and Second Corinthians in our New Testaments. So Corinth is a big deal in the life of Paul. It's also really st- strategically uh, placed. If you think about the Mediterranean Sea and you think about the, the Roman Empire, the, the Roman Empire stretched all the way around the borders of the Mediterranean Sea. Here we have uh, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. And um, in order for ships to get from one side to the other, they had to go all the way around. Or sometimes they would dock here and then go by land here. Several emperors tried to build a canal here. Um, it was unsuccessful. There's a canal here today, but it wasn't built till uh, the 20th century, the early 20th century, um, that goes across this stretch of land. But Corinth was extremely strategic because um, it had harbors on both sides. Um, it, if in order to go from Athens down to Sparta, you had to travel through Corinth. Uh, this is where some of the ancient Olympic, Olympic Games took place in this region. So it's just a really important strategic uh, city. This is a picture of uh, some of the ruins. And the Corinth, uh, the uh, people from Corinth were really proud that their uh, temple mount was higher than the one in Athens. And so they were very proud of that. So they had the same sort of silly rivalries that we have uh, today. My stadium's bigger than yours, that kind of thing. Um, in Corinth, just like any Roman city in the first century, and I've talked about this in the past, and it's really important to understand some of Paul's statements and some of what the church, the tension that the church was feeling. But in every Roman city of the first century, all the citizens, whether they were Roman citizens or not, were required by law to pray and sacrifice to Caesar. And so in each Roman city, uh, Caesar, the the emperor, would set up a statue to himself, and every citizen of the city would be required to make sacrifices and pray to the emperors, the cult of Caesar, the Roman cult, different names for it. There was one exception to this. Do you remember who, who was exempted from this? The Jews. In all of the Roman Empire, the only people that were exempted from this requirement were the Jews because every time they tried to get these darn Jews to pray to Caesar, they would revolt. And so it just became not worth it to the Romans. And so they made an exemption, but the only people in the entire Roman Empire, all those hundreds of thousands, millions of people that lived in this huge swath of land that they controlled, the only people that didn't have to pray to Caesar were Jews. Now, this is important for the early church because when the Christians start bringing Gentiles into the Jewish faith, some of the Jewish Christians start looking around and they're looking around and they're thinking, they're going to start, they're gonna start uh, trying to get in on this, the exemption, and that's going to put us at risk of losing the whole thing. And so this is part of the Jewish uh, Christian Gentile tension that's bubbling underneath the surface uh, throughout the early church period. This was definitely taking place in Corinth because the emperor Claudius set up his statue at the very height 
Um, and above every other idol in the city uh, towered the, the statue to Caesar Claudius. And every citizen of Corinth was expected to pray to him. Corinth was the Las Vegas of uh, the Roman world. So it was a place that people went to uh, gamble and party and have a good time. And um, it had a population of about 200,000, over half of which would have been slaves. And this is the case for most uh, major cities back in the first century. Now, 200,000 to us, that doesn't sound very big uh, to modern uh, people. How many people are in New York City right now? There's a lot of people. Millions and millions and millions of people. There's 8 million people in the Philadelphia region. So 200,000 doesn't sound big to us, but this was a mega city in the first century. So this is one of the largest cities um, of the first century. It's a huge city for the time. And so it would have been overwhelming. You know when you haven't been to New York in a while and you step there, you, you know, you get off the train or you, you get off the, the ferry and you look up. It's like overwhelming, right, when you see that? That would have been the feeling of visitors to Corinth. They would have come and been like, wow, how are there so many people in one place? Now, Corinth was an ancient city, but it had been destroyed by Rome in 146 BCE. So that's before Christ. And then it was rebuilt by Caesar. That's the original Caesar in 44 BCE and populated with retired Roman soldiers. Rome had a real problem um, because they had this huge standing military. And one of the incentives uh, to serve in the military, especially if you were not a Roman citizen, was that if you served faithfully in the Roman military, upon retirement, you would receive Roman citizenship. It's a major, major reason, a uh, way that Romans recruited into their uh, military. But that created a problem for Rome because Rome was already overpopulated and they couldn't take care of the population of Rome. So all of a sudden you have this massive influx of people who carry Roman citizenship. So what do you do with all these people? You start new cities and stick them there. So that's what Caesar did in uh, 44. Rome was already overpopulated and so he looked around for a, a likely place to plant a prosperous new city and uh, he chose the ruins of what had been destroyed uh, about 100 years before that in Corinth, and he uh, planted a new city. He called it Corinth, and he filled it with retired uh, Roman soldiers. Also, the Itzmian Games, which were like Olympic Games held every other year, were held right outside of Corinth, and what's cool is Paul actually references these games in 1 Corinthians 9. So when you're reading 1 Corinthians this week and you come across this passage, you can realize, oh, he used that analogy because that was taking place right outside of where these people lived. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, do you not know, this was written a couple years later, back to the church in Corinth, do you not know that all in a race, that in a race all the runners run? I hope so, Paul. But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's literally what was placed on the head of the winner at these games, a perishable wreath. So Paul's referencing that exact situation. But we run for an imperishable 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body 
and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I think it's so cool that Paul, when he wrote his epistles, when he wrote his letters, he used analogies that, like, he knew his people. He knew the people of the churches, and he used analogies that would make sense to their culture and their situation. So if Paul were writing a letter to us in Pottstown, the church of Pottstown, what analogy do you think he would use? What would, what, what would he liken the faith to based on, on our, our type of living, our lifestyle? What do you think? Be creative. Shout it out. Blue-collar workers? Might, yeah. Especially back in the day, might have had a steel factory reference or a train reference or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just find this endlessly encouraging that the Lord speaks to us in a way that we can understand in our time, our place, our culture. And this is how Paul uh, taught and spoke to the first Christians. All right, so with all of this information, that was a lot of information. You guys okay? All right. So we're going to go back over the passage that we read together, and then um, I'm going to encourage you to read 1 Corinthians again and 1 Thessalonians this week. So Acts 18, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So this big city, this important big Roman city. And here he finds a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. I think Josh talked about this, but usually how are Achilla and Priscilla referenced in Scripture? Whose name comes first? Priscilla. Isn't that cool? So typically, the rest of Scripture, after this first introduction to them, whenever anybody talks about them, certainly Paul in his letters, he always lists Priscilla before Achilla, um, because she was the primary teacher of the couple. And her husband, to his great and lasting credit, um, and I think this is what Josh talked about a little bit, he chose uh, to take a backseat in a way and support his wife's gifts. So men, we can learn from this ancient couple and learn to, to really bless our wives and set them up to, to flourish and succeed. And Priscilla and Achilla become a major uh, major players going forward. So this is where he first meets them. They would have already been Christians, um, likely, um, and they struck up a relationship immediately. Because Claudius, it says in verse 2, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So what had happened was uh, Rome had uh, already had Christians in it. By this point, we don't know who brought the gospel to Rome first. So when, when Paul writes uh, the epistle to the Romans, he has never been there. He's writing to a church that's already there that he's never met. Um, he knows some people that are there, but he, he's never been to Rome yet. So there's already Christians in Rome. There's already a church, and there was tension, just like in all the other cities between the, the Orthodox Jews and the, the Christians, and it caused um, some rioting and revolts between these two groups, and Claudius, the Roman emperor, got so fed up with it that he kicked out not only the Christians, not only the Jews, but he kicked out all of them. All of them had to leave the city. Um, and so Priscilla and Aquila apparently were in Rome, and they were kicked out by the emperor Claudius and commanded to leave. And he went to see them. So Paul goes to see them. He hears about their name. He's introduced to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. 
I know most of our translations say tent maker. Paul was probably a leather worker, um, primarily, as were Priscilla and Aquila. And tent making would have been part of the leather making industry that they, they were a part of. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. This is what Paul does, right? He goes into a new place. He goes to the synagogue, and he starts preaching in the synagogue every Sabbath. When's the Sabbath? Saturday. So he's there every Saturday trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived, thank God they finally caught up with him. He's got to be so happy. When they arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So he hasn't been twiddling his thumbs. He not only got a job, uh, but he's been preaching. And so Paul has been occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. All right, I want to take a moment. And I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians here, because this is when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. So uh, Timothy arrives, Silas and Timothy, and Paul is anxious, anxious to hear about how these new believers um, that they had barely met, how are they doing? Are they doing okay? Are they prospering? Are they suffering? So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, the first chapter is pretty short, so I'm going to read it, and just... Feel with me Paul's love for this early church. Feel with me the passion he has for these people. And, and he, he's got a depth of love for them that's pretty remarkable uh, for having known them so little. It says, Paul, Silvanus, which is the Greek form of Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and Achaia, that's southern Greece. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith and God has gone forth everywhere, so we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So again, Paul is writing this to a brand new church. Do you think they would have had questions, theological questions? All right. Does anyone in here have any questions that they want to ask God and they want an answer to theologically? You have, you have questions? Okay. I have a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch of them, and I spend a lot of time uh, trying to find out as best as we can some of the answers to these, these questions, but still, even dedicating much of my life to that kind of thing, there's still so much mystery. Can you imagine how they must have felt? These guys come in like meteors through the night, and then they take off, and they've got all these questions. One of the big questions, and the reason why Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, is this. They expected Jesus to return immediately, 
And they expected that all who had come to faith in Christ would still be alive when Jesus returned to consummate and bring the kingdom into full being. Now, what happened, and we know this from the context of of the letter to the Thessalonians, one of their beloved members of the early church of Thessalonica died, and Christ hadn't come back yet. Does that mean he didn't have faith, a real faith in Jesus? Does that mean he's going to eternal damnation? Does that mean that he's outside of the kingdom of God? This beloved member of their church had died and Jesus had not returned. And so they send Timothy or Silas or perhaps someone else down to Paul with this question. What does this mean? We thought that Jesus was coming back. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to answer that question. So when you're reading 1 Thessalonians, that is the reason why Paul wrote this letter. And that's why he talks about those who have gone before us and have uh, already fallen asleep and those who have remained alive. Um, And when Jesus returns with a shout and the trumpet blow, those who have fallen asleep will rise and those who are still alive will come out and will meet him in the air and Jesus will come and reign eternally. And so we we get a glimpse, a hint, at at Paul's eschatology, but he's answering a very pastoral theological question that the church in Thessalonica had. He answers this question even deeper in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're reading 1 Thessalonians and it stokes some curiosity, what are the end times going to be like? What's it going to be like when Jesus returns? The place where where Paul explains it most clearly is in 1 Corinthians 15, which you're going to read this week. So awesome! You're going to get the context of both. All right. Good job, guys. So Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. Paul's occupied with the word. He writes the letter. So he's literally writing scripture, occupied with the word. But he's also preaching the word in the synagogue and anywhere where anyone will listen to him. And when they opposed and reviled him, specifically the Jews, when they opposed and reviled him like an Old Testament prophet, he shakes out his garments And says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. This isn't the first time he's made this statement. He's already made this statement several times in Acts. He just means it in Corinth. So from now on in Corinth, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he left there. Now this is is really funny. Think about this for a second. Where does he go? He leaves the synagogue. Where does he go? Next door. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> it's like Pats and Geno's in Philly, right? It's like, uh, man, can you imagine the, the Jews in the synagogue are like, good riddance, get out of here and don't come back. Where's he going? Oh, man, <laughs> he set up shop right next door and he's, and he's preaching. Verse 8, Crispus And this had to really be frustrating for for, uh, the Jews who were not accepting the gospel. Crispus, the ruler, so he's he's the board chair of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Remember, Paul has been hopping from city to city, running, in some cases, for his life. And, perse- and, and, and dissension is starting to grow in Corinth. And so you can just see, same movie, different, you know, or same story, different place, whatever. And so he's expecting to leave Corinth, but Jesus appears to him in vision and says, do not be afraid. 
Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. What a beautiful moment. A beautiful moment. Jesus appears to Paul to encourage him. Sort of like the angels ministering to Jesus the night before his death. The Lord is always with us. This is the promise that Jesus leaves before he ascends into heaven. He says to his disciples, Lo, behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. He says, echoes the same thing to Paul. I'm with you. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's a year and a half. That's how long I've been here at Parterford. We've developed some pretty close relationships, right? So Paul builds a deep, loving, pastoral, passionate depth of relationships between him and this body, and you can feel that when you read 1 Corinthians. This is a man who knows these people and is hurting over the things that they are struggling with. 1 Corinthians 2, which you'll read this week, amen? Verse 1, he says, he describes how he came to Corinth. It's, he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you, pro- proclaiming to you that, sorry, let me start over. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is describing what's happening in this passage in Acts 18. He's coming not with worldly wisdom, but with God's wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I can imagine as, as Paul is pinning this or, or uh, speaking out loud, to the scribe, that he has in mind the vision. He's remembering Jesus appearing to him and saying, just go on telling about my story. He says, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. He was in weakness and fear and trembling because he'd been running from his life for his life and been beaten and imprisoned. We think of Paul as like John Wayne sometimes, I think. Like this tough, you know, soldier for the kingdom of God. This is human hurting, aching, trembling, he says. Verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Back to Acts 18, verse 12, When Galileo, who was proconsul of Achaia, and this is just fascinating nugget, uh, Galileo was the brother of Seneca. Uh, Seneca was the, the famous Roman uh, philosopher and playwright. And so this is his brother. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime of Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Now, one thing I want to point out here. Notice that the complaint against Paul is this. He's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, in Philippi, when Paul and Silas were accused of, uh, they were accused of teaching Jewish customs. So it was Greeks that accused Paul. They said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. So, he, so in Philippi, Paul was too Jewish. He was too Jewish. And that's why he got in trouble. The, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocated customs that are not lawful to us Romans. Now in Thessalonians, Ah, I can never say this word, Thessalonica, and in Berea, Paul was accused by Jews of not being Jewish enough and therefore breaking the exemption laws of worship, teaching things that were anti-Caesar. 
And Berea, Paul was chased out by the, uh, the, the Thessalonian Jews who had traveled to stir up trouble against them. Now in Corinth, Paul is more generically accused of teaching people to worship in illegal ways. So he can't win on either side. And it's got to feel sort of ironic and hypocritical that on one case he's accused of being too Jewish, and then by the Jews he's accused of being too Roman. And he, which, yeah, he can't win. So... Galileo doesn't take this. He's, this is ridiculous. I'm not dealing with this. He drives them from the tribunal, verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, who is Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue? Wait a second. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. So now the new ruler of the synagogue has apparently become a Christian, which has got to be endlessly frustrating. <laughs> to the synagogue leaders that they raise up a new leader and now he's a Christian and he gets beat up. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I promise this is a lot of information. I'm almost done. You guys are doing great. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to, uh, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, guess who? Sosthenes. Paul and Sosthenes together are writing 1 Corinthians. Isn't that awesome? This is this man who was beaten. Years later, he's traveling apostolically and missionally with Paul. Thank you, God. We don't know anything about this man, but thank you, God, for this man. God, but Galileo paid, uh, Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So it all happens. Uh, they beat him up, and he doesn't pay attention. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla. And, Achilla. and as we end our time in the Word, I just want to read this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it has pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. So I don't really have any application for you. Just a whole bunch of information today. Other than this, to challenge you to take this information and explore the word of God. With this background information, what Paul was dealing with, what he was feeling, what he was thinking as he was writing 1 Corinthians, writing 1 Thessalonians, take this back into your own homes, into your own lives, and soak in God's word and let it feed you. Amen? All right, let's pray together, and we're going to close our time with worship. Father, we bless you. We love you, God. We love your word. I had so much fun reading and studying and thinking about all this stuff and discovering how all the lines connected, and I... I to be quite honest, I, I had either forgotten or, or hadn't known that this man, Sosthenes, was the same guy in 1 Corinthians 1. So just on a personal level, that was so cool to connect those dots uh, this week. And I pray that there would be much of that that your spirit does among our body because of the way your word weaves and works together. Thank you for the gift of the scriptures, God. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.